Hi there, all you cats and kittens. Nostalgia Pod coming at you, giving you your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined by my trusty co-host, Dave Martin Swagger, still social distancing and quarantining himself. Dave, how you doing? Uh, did not watch Tiger King. Only person left holding out, <laughs> distancing myself from that content. How you doing? Uh, I'm I'm doing okay. Tiger King was a, a good way to fill some time. And that, that seems like mostly what we're, we're doing at this point because we're, we're still not, not getting much. Uh, luckily, though, we had a pretty solid music week to talk about as well as a couple of Netflix things. So <laughs> we're going uh, to be diving into all that. But before we do, Hit that subscribe button if you're watching on YouTube to support us. Uh, go to soundcloud.com slash nostalgiapod and give us a follow there and uh, listen to the podcast any way you want to and also a five-star rating and review. Always appreciated. Dave, w- w- what made you not want to watch Tiger King? Uh, well, the thing about Tiger King is it's, it's like a viral Netflix phenomenon and that's why everyone cares because it's a viral thing on Netflix that everyone's talking about, you know? This happens all the time ever since like making a murderer something else. I didn't bother watching. I don't know. I think that's kind of like quote, quote unquote, true crime. I just don't really have a lot of interest in. And I feel like it's kind of just better if you just read the story, especially if there's like a good report out there, like you get the idea. But also like, I feel like people are going to are like, quote unquote, lionizing, tigerizing parts of Joe Exotic to a certain extent, which I just don't support, of course, because he's like a piece of shit to animals. So yeah, not really, not really my bag, but uh, I, I'm, I'm definitely in the minority on that one as the Netflix top 10 will let you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is a, a nice little feature that they've added and I've been paying a little bit more attention to the the top 10. However, um, I agree. I think the, the viralness and the, the sensationalizing around this is definitely um, playing a part into the popularity, but unlike making a murderer where, you had the story, and like you said, you can get some really good reporting or like a good in-depth picture into this. It, Tiger King had so many parts to it that if you didn't see certain aspects of it, you almost wouldn't believe it. This is possibly the most ridiculous story ever told. <laughs> Just uh, it's Joe Exotic is the type of character that if I just kept telling you details about this person before you knew it was a real thing, you would probably tell someone to like tone that character back that you're writing. It's just too <laughs> ridiculous. Like right. this, this we guy, have some notes. right. If is, as Dave's talking, you can see the picture behind him. I mean, he, he started his own zoo in Oklahoma where people could get closer than any other reservation. He, he called it a zoo, not really a zoo. Um, all these tigers there and whatnot. And, uh, he also became a recording artist, quote unquote, and released these music videos. He ran for president, ran for governor, uh, hired someone to murder his rival. His rival also probably killed her husband uh, and fed him to tigers. <laughs> um, it's, uh, there are twists and turns throughout this thing that I was saying what the fuck pretty much every 10 minutes or so, just when they would drop new details. I mean, just like a... a five minute cameo within the second or third episode they they dropped the guy that tony montana from scarface is based off of um to give a little bit of insight into his relationship with joe exotic and doc mantle who's another tiger owning Mm -hmm. person and 
the country and that's like a five minute thing where he basically like admits like or it's shown that he admitted in court that he took part in uh, dismembering a body um, after he claims he didn't kill the person but someone else did and he helped them dismember the body and that's just like a five minute like drop in drop out we don't hear from him really ever again and I was just like what the fuck like you just had Scarface on the fucking thing and this is like not even not even something that really catches much attention it's, right <laughs> it's absurd and I, I think that's the the thing that um, really makes Tiger King so riveting it's just like the story is something you really can't believe unless you see and then see the reporting. Um, is it, is it good TV? Probably not. It's, it's garbage in, in a lot of sense. Is it but worth seven hours? Ah, uh, you know, right? seven they, episodes. That's, that's long, right? For a docuseries. It is. Um, however, it didn't really feel too slow to me at any parts. Like there was just always so much new information coming through. I was kind of like, okay, like I can, I can get down with this. Um, I do think parts of it were maybe a little bit uh, embellished or, or expounded upon uh, again and again, but um, really for, for what it was and for the time it dropped, uh, couldn't have been more perfect because this is the type of thing that uh, when you have a lot of captive eyes can really get a, a nice Twitter uh, community going and there's certainly a lot of memes out there uh do i agree with all of them or support them no joe exotic and pretty much everybody in this film is a piece of shit um and they're all pretty bad people um but it, it wasn't entertaining and killed seven hours of my quarantine yeah and i'm cool with that so shout out to uh to netflix for blessing us with the tiger king content have you seen any memes you really like about it uh no, honestly, I can't say I'm seeing too many of them. I'm really, I'm really avoiding it, living in my own little bubble. So mm-hmm. I, I know it's a meme, a meme factory, but whenever I see them, I just kind of scroll past. So it's, it's one of those things I just decided I'm not going to uh, figure out what they mean and just <laughs> let it pass. And I'm very happy to do that. <laughs> Probably for the best. My, my favorite one has just been people merging Joe Exotic's face onto Trump. Uh, just mm. feels very... Uh, the two people who are kindred souls. Yeah, I'm sure they'd heart. be friends. Yeah, they maybe he'll get a presidential pardon. Who knows? He's currently uh, looking for it, at least, or asking for it. So. <laughs> Anyways, why don't we move on to a little bit of a uh, maybe a better piece of content dropped by Netflix, Crip Camp, uh, the 2020 Sundance Audience Award-winning documentary, um, which, speaking of presidents. This is produced by President Obama's production company that he started like two or three years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, directed by James Lebrecht and Nicole Newman. Uh, is, it, is it Newhand? Newhand, sorry. Can't yep. read my own handwriting here. Um, apologies to Nicole Newhand. It follows the, the lives of uh, people with, uh, disab- with disabilities um, who go to Camp Jened in 1971. Um, which was not uh, an official person with disabilities camp, but it was uh, a free-spirited camp that was aimed at people with disabilities. Mm. And it shows how the experience at this camp kind of uh, sent some of these folks on on a trajectory to become activists in the world of disabled people and to fight for disabled rights. Um, Really moving documentary. Um, I found myself tearing up quite a few times. Uh, I, I, I thought it was well told. Dave, how are you feeling after watching Crip Camp? 
Oh yeah, I, I think it, it it nails it, man. The Crip Camp's really great. Um, really strikes home the uh, just the need for empathy and understanding, and and the tone it, it, it is done so well because it's really about people with disabilities trying to lead active lives and pursuing you know what they what they want to do with that's activism or their studies or just you know whatever their interests may be is you know a fair amount of characters that i say pop up throughout most of the doc you know as we progress through the time and you know just it kind of restates i think in a great way like the overall i don't know, i guess message that disabled people always try and express to others that just view them as people like you and I and leave it at that. You know, you don't have to like be super, super nice to me and like overprotective of me. I think they made a great point of pointing out why like the default well-intentioned efforts that perhaps their parents used to make back in the day when this was not something people talked about uh, also was not the right way to go about things as well as people that are obviously being like really mean or whatnot. And then once we move past that and move towards like, the fight activism aspect and the, you know, the fight for uh, disabled rights. And you, you think, you know, it wasn't that long ago when uh, handicap accessibility in like urban centers was just completely non-existent, you know? And the, the doc, I think it was, it was, the tone is so good because it, it grounds in specific people with like specifically interesting stories. Mm-hmm. And I guess having this like camp that brought people together and then kept them connected was like, I think almost a good framing device, but also it's kind of interesting too, because thinking of like camps back in like the seventies, um, as someone who used to work at a camp, it's a, a lot different than, than it is now in terms of like <laughs> the smoking <laughs> and the co-edness and then the boundaries and lack thereof. It's kind of interesting. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's really well done and you know, uh, two, uh, two for two or back to back years for, um, Obama's production company. Cause of course American factory was a big hit for them as well. So yeah, I really liked it. You know, I think you spoke on um, a really crucial point to this, which is uh, with a topic this large to, you know, especially talking about disabled rights, the the fight and the activism for that, um, it would have been really easy to just kind of tell the history of, of the fight and to just kind of give the facts and show how things developed and highlight certain events. I think by kind of following i think they picked like four or five people they picked larry Al- allison um judith uh uh Heyman or human um james lebrecht the the director uh and then denise scherzer jacobson um those were kind of like the four main ones that they followed i think it i think it gives a, such a sense of humanity to uh the the documentary that it, I think is what propels this to be a great documentary. Um, you take these stories and you take these these people and their experiences and to bring to light how the way things were back in the seventies and uh, what that meant to each of these people individually, and then how that propelled them forward um, in their lives. Like, I don't remember which one of these four it was, but there was a woman with cerebral palsy who um, she tells a story about, she was going to uh i think it was like treatment or something like that and she ended up having sex with her bus with her bus driver 
<laughs> and then she talks about going to her gynecologist after the fact and she had an STD and they like almost couldn't believe that she had the STD. And right. she basically said like, um, because people thought this is something I could never do, I wanted to do it. And even though it's something so small, you could see like the impact this had on her and her humanity and the way that she like saw the world. Um, and I think those kind of stories, um, people talking, you know, some of the interviews from the camp even talking about the the lack of privacy that that they had growing up um, and seeing the camaraderie among those individuals relating to each other. You kind of see the, the impact that things had that way and why this fight was so important, not only for the broader community, but for these people individually. And then to bring in some of those historical events as they talk about the activism, I think especially mm-hmm. the, the shutdown of the, in New York city in that protest right. was just remarkable and jaw dropping in a sense. It was really well done in terms of how they framed it, but then also how they kind of told the story moving through time. Yeah. And like you said, connecting it to those events, you know, I think everyone, I think the, the story of, uh, you know, anti-war, protesting and stuff during the Vietnam War and of course civil rights movement having around the same time as well uh, the disabilities activism is not something you hear about nearly as much despite being kind of intertwined with those two things mm-hmm. and I think it really kind of like caught my eye once they like realized that they almost needed uh, disabled veterans specifically veterans to help them just to get more visibility mm. and yeah, it's just kind of interesting because, again, like you, you think of how uh, the institutions and how, how they've changed since the 70s. And obviously they, uh, I think, do a, do a good job when they, you know, kind of be very stark and uh, honest and showing things like, what was it? Um, what was that? That Staten Island, uh, quote unquote, hospital. What was it called? Hilderbook or something? Uh, I forget yeah. the name. Um, where, where a young Geraldo, of all people, is the one doing the expose. And you're like, yeah, that wasn't that long ago, man. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, I mean, the docs, I'd recommend this to anyone just because I think it's both really informative just in terms of getting you a lot of information about uh, how things have changed. And also, again, because it's grounded in specific characters that I think do a really good job both in like the testimonials and also looking back with all, there's a lot of archival footage. Um, it it kind of gives you everything you want in a documentary. So mm-hmm. I think it's really great. Um, you know, Miss Americana, Taylor Swift stock got I think more more press, quote unquote, at a Sundance. But I think everyone has rightfully heralded Crip Camp as the superior doc of this year's Sundance with a little more important subject matter. Yeah, I recommended this documentary to quite a few people already um, since seeing it. I think it's just important uh, because of the, the, what we say matters, the way we treat people matters, right? And I think that that's kind of the thing. Um, that we, we see coming out of Obama's higher grounds production company is that um, he's highlighting stories that highlight the human American experience. Um, you know, I think American factory tied in a little bit of how the global experience, especially China mm-hmm. has impacted the, the factory right. experience, but um, he's highlighting pieces of American life that uh, tell important stories and relatable stories. Um, and, uh, I hope he keeps making these because I, I think it's it's impressive. Um, obviously, in line with I think a lot of impressiveness from President Obama, um, but also important to be be looking at these things. So, uh, shout out to to forty four. Why don't we move on to some music though? Um, we'll start with Lil Dragon. 
Dave, you're a big Little Dragon fan, right? Uh, I wouldn't say I'm a big fan. Actually, for the <laughs> longest time, I would get Little Dragon confused with K-pop superstar G-Dragon and always forgot which one was which because you would see their names a lot because Little Dragon's been around for like 13 years. So yeah, yeah I always got the dragons mixed up. <laughs> well, as long as you're not getting them mixed up with Imagine Dragons because huh. they make much more that? quality music. Uh, they, they bring more than just the thunder and the lightning. Uh, they bring excellent production and uh, subtle songwriting that I think made their newest album, uh, New Me, Same Us, a pretty solid listen. Um, I've never been huge into Little Dragon. I think uh, I kind of, it kind of depends on the song. I don't think I've had any albums of theirs I've listened to that really grabbed me, but a couple of their, their bigger hits, especially like Wildfire, um, just a really well-crafted, smartly done song. And uh, I think after 13 years, they're obviously masters of their craft. Um, but listening to this most recent album, it almost felt a little bit like a, uh, like a, a chill hop album in a sense. Yeah. Um, very, uh, very much. If I wanted to listen to this album again, uh, probably go sit in the park whenever we can, uh, get back outside, uh, <laughs> smoke a blunt and just listen to this because it's just like a, a very vibey, um, mellow sounding album. How did you feel listening to new me? Same us. Yeah. Same that down tempo dream pop, uh, usually doesn't do a whole lot for me, but um, Yukimi Nagano, the lead singer, she kind of has an interesting voice and oftentimes the, the, the whole, uh, you know, the, the whole the fullness of the song, are usually her singing a lot of the times when this, again, understated instrumentation and whatnot. But yeah, in this case, I, um, I feel like I kind of just floated in and out. There were songs that had their moments, like uh, I like sadness a lot. That one was a little more... Um, higher energy and it's obviously nice to hear Kaliukus at the end but um yeah it's funny because this is their their sixth record and when you've been an indie artist that long you kind of just do what you want and they've talked about this in interviews where they had lanes to pursue a more mainstream friendly sound and I mean their fourth album got Grammy nominated and whatnot but like they just weren't interested in that and I obviously respect that but for, for me, I'm kind of like you. Like it's it's really very much song to song for me because uh, that down tempo stuff sometimes it's just uh, it's just it's 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 almost too vibey, too vibey for me. But I re- I respect it again. Uh, when you're indie that long, it's it's pretty cool to see uh, people just kind of march into the beat of their own drum. But I mean, they they've done features from time to time. You can look at their uh, their collaborations. You know, a lot of notable names like Flume and Katranata. They were on mm-hmm. Little Sims last year. Uh, they were on Mac Miller way back. Um, I liked her on Tanache two albums ago. So, yeah, they're, they're pretty cool. Yeah, you can definitely hear that that Tranata type vibe. I think on a couple of the songs in the back half half of this album, um, it reminded me a little bit of some of the songs off Tranata's ninety nine point nine percent. That's where it is. Feature. Yep, and it, I, I mean, I, I think I liked a couple more of the songs than you did. Um, are you feeling sad? Which I, I liked both the Kaliukas version and, and the just a little dragon version. Um, I thought New Fiction was really good. The the bass in that really stood out, and and the bongos had a, was a nice like touch and flourish there at the end. Um, and where you belong, um, just like this like funky chill 
song, which I, I really vibe to. But yeah, you know, I, I think the thing about Little Dragon for me, and I think you kind of touched a little bit on my feelings, is uh, I didn't. There wasn't enough variation throughout this album for me to really find it super interesting. I think some of the songs started blending together for me or sounding a bit samey. Um, and I respect, like like you said, I respect their their craftsmanship. I, I don't think any of these songs are poorly made, um, but I, I just think they sounded a little too in line for me to to really feel like this album stood out. Um, fairly forgettable, but I think there's some some good things to take away. I'm probably through one of the songs on the playlist, so mm-hmm. check that out. Now, Stelja Best of 2020. Well, I move on to a singer-songwriter who I think I'm a little bit higher on than Little Dragon. Actually, I know I'm a lot higher on than Imagine Dragon or Little Dragon. <laughs> uh, Waxahachie with, their, uh, with her fifth album, St. Cloud, follow-up to 2017's Out in the Storm. Did we review that one? I don't remember. I think we talked on that. I mean, we also, she had a, a, a short EP in 2018 as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely mentioned those. I don't remember if I listened to the 2017 album, to be honest. Yeah, but yeah, uh, in some regard, sure. But that's kind of what happens with indie artists. You talk about them, and then you wait for them to do new things. You talk about them again; they kind of fade away. <laughs> but in this case, obviously, a lot to talk about because this is a uh, pretty exciting. Yeah, it's it's really exciting because it, if you know Waxahachie or know any of her former stuff, especially like her her debut album, Cerulean Salt, or. Uh, the uh, American Weekend, sorry, uh, I think American Weekend was actually the, the debut album, and then Cerulean yeah. Salt was the follow-up. Um, yep. th- those albums rest on on the strength of your songwriting, the, this like lo-fi, very like stark-sounding production, um, and pretty pretty simple, but like cutting um, like guitar work and, and drum production. It's very cold, I would say. You know, it. Waxahachie's introspective and she's like tearing herself apart in a lot of ways and um out in the storm a little bit more expansive got really good critical reviews um but kind of in the same line where it's still kind of like introspective um a bit depressing kind of look looking at what's going on with with katie crutchfield who is waxahachie um what's so exciting about saint cloud is it feels like such a change in direction and this album is incredibly warm even if you look at the cover of out in the storm and then this cover the colors in out in the storm are gray mm-hmm. it's like muted bluish kind of color and it's just very much like you know like an old black and white movie whereas this is so vibrant you know she's on top of this ford truck in this bright blue dress with the i don't know what's that roses in the back and i think so yeah just really getting her og lana del rey on yeah for real very lana del rey vibes on that cover and the whole album just feels very warm and it really blends that folky indie rock uh sensibility that wax hatch usually has with like you've mentioned americana a couple times that's kind of the key word for this thing there's that like americana uh almost like singer songwriter country vibe to this. And I think it, it, I think she pulled it off beautifully on St. Cloud. How did you feel about it? Yeah, I liked it a lot. Like I said, I didn't really remember much about her past work that I'd heard, but in this case, I think St. Cloud's really special because 
it leaves an impression on you in a relatively short amount of time without being too complicated. You kind of said this, like mm. it's simple chords, it's simple acoustic guitar work. And it's just, you know, cutting lyrics and it's just really personal bare bones music. Mm-hmm. And uh, when that, when that much personality can shine with relatively simple accoutrements around it, I think that, you know, that just makes for special music, especially in indie rock where sometimes it can get a little, uh, you know, get kind of a little softly spoken. Um, so it reminds me of what I liked about, I liked about soccer mommy as well. Mm. Um, yeah. Just uh, really rich vocals that really just shine. So it's a really easy to listen to, but if you listen, listen closer, you hear that Katie's talking about becoming sober over the past few years. And perhaps the stark change in imagery on the album covers reflects this kind of rebirth, regrowth for her, just guessing, but maybe that has something to do with it. Um, yeah. So I, I really like the, uh, was it the, the guitars on was a war. And then I thought mm. fire, one of the more introspective songs, the drums really awesome there. Uh, so yeah, overall it's uh it's really great. Yeah, and you talk about that the simpleness in her songwriting. I think she does a really good job of creating these really catchy, almost kind of like uh spin you around type choruses and, and verses and um you know, kind of mixing that with these like layered guitar sounds. There's a lot of tracks where there's like this twangy, like uh stratocaster sound, and then you go to then you have the the acoustic guitars kind of underneath kind of plucking along to it um and and it just sounds really beautiful um you know organs are are pretty heavily used on this album to kind of give that like livelier vibe um and i i was just really impressed because you you think about how artists so often try to change directions and you know in in a second we're going to be talking about artists who necessarily haven't changed directions maybe enough to to really expand upon their 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 style and their sound but waxahachie almost seems to have uh used her becoming sober as a a way to propel herself into a new lane in her music while still holding true to what it means to be her as a singer songwriter you know with these very concise but uh cutting lyrics um and, and introspective lyrics and they, there seems to be an optimism to this album that i think just feels like waxahachie unlocked something for herself um i think ruby falls is a, a track that really stands out to me as well as the eye those both feel like that like blend of uh, old school waxahachie with some more of this like optimism um but yeah i i'm I think this is probably one of my favorite albums of the year. Definitely up there um, with the the weekend after hours from last week, uh, which I'm I'm still bumping quite often. Um, and you know, I, I heard it, the the producer for this, um, Brad Cook, worked a lot with Bonnie Vare, and I think that makes a lot of sense because I I, I hear a lot of like the newer Bonnie Vare production kind of throughout this, and almost kind of like a, a Jenny Lewis vibe to this as well. From sure last year's on the line so uh there's just so much in this i feel like uh i'm gonna have to listen three or four more times to really dissect all my thoughts but it really impressive showing uh and a fifth album i I can't believe she's been around that long but uh go back and listen to her other work if you got some time yeah i think i think she's probably one of the more premier artists on her label she's on merge records which is one of those bigger indie labels like matador 
I was just looking at the the roster they have, and I mean, they have Connor Oberst, Destroyer, X Hex, and a lot of, a lot a lot of other acts, but a lot of them I don't recognize. So she, I, I think I'm, I was actually kind of surprised that she was still on one of the indie labels because I feel like she's kind of been a known quantity for a while. But um, mm-hmm. that's kind of cool still. Connor Oberst, uh, Bright Eyes might be making a comeback here soon. They're supposed to be. I think they they announced something like that. So we'll uh, might be we'll reviewing them. We need yeah. more content. <laughs> Give us the content. Uh, Pearl Jam gave us the content, Dave, with their. I dig a ton of it. <laughs> That's such a bad joke. <laughs> um, I actually didn't even write down which album this is. I, I'm going to assume. Yeah, I was going to say 10th. Um, that, that makes sense. And their first one in seven years since uh, mm-hmm. Lightning Bolt dropped in 2013. Uh, their last album before that was t- 2009's, uh, was it Backspin? Uh, yeah, something like back, that. Backspacer, I think it was. Most of actually. their aughts albums don't matter to anyone except hardcore Pearl Jam fans, if we're being honest. Well, right, and that's that's kind of the thing. So I want to want to start with a theory, and then maybe we can work our way back to the album. Right. So '90s '90s rock, right? Mm-hmm. '90s grunge, grunge music. You had Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Chili Peppers. I wouldn't put them in the grunge, but they were still up there. No. Soundgarden. Same same time of year. Right. Or t- time of um, origin. Radiohead. Yeah, Radiohead. And a lot of those bands had maybe higher peaks than Pearl Jam, but flamed out for different reasons. Obviously, like Kurt Cobain died and Nirvana was over. And then from those ashes rose Dave Grohl and Foo Fighters. That reminds me of like Alex Rodriguez, Nomar Garcia Parra from the early 2000s. Some of those players had really high peaks in their seasons. I think Pearl Jam is the Derek Jeter of, of their, their time of music, where they had this mm, really like extended, this. long <laughs> career where they are they're still one of the best touring bands. Whenever they play live, they fucking kill it. Uh, and their career is just they, – they maintain a level of, of – success and excellence that goes longer than most of their peers but they're reaching the tail end when jeter was batting like 280 driving in like 45 runs 70 runs and 15 home runs and you're like okay mm. and his, his range was always shitty but you know it's still still decent yeah i, I think timeline wise Derek jeter was robbed of the mvp in 2006 i think by 2006 pearl jam was uh it's kind of shot. So I don't know if it totally, totally tracks, but their longevity and I think their, their live performance reputation is what's connected to that. And they have this massive fan base that's led to them selling like 80 million records, whatever it is. And they haven't really been concerned with inventing anything new within themselves artistically in a very long time, probably since the 90s. But that's okay. They make music for themselves and for their big legion of fans. And because they are such great performers, they earn a lot of money doing that. And everyone seems to be satisfied. You know, a band like Radiohead is willing to reinvent themselves, you know? And a band like Red Hot Chili Peppers even had their most successful album in like 06, right? Like uh, Stadium Arcadium is like, I think their best selling record. (laughs) Whether it should have been or not, that was still the case, you know? But Pearl Jam never got like excitement again except from their hardcore fans who they had from the jump so 
they're kind of an interesting act in that regard for me because they've kind of just acted like a legacy act for two thirds of their existence because they got so big so fast. Um, frankly, I think I, I care more about like their early fight against Ticketmaster, which which failed. But like, I think that that's probably the most admirable thing they ever done. But I never, I was never a huge Pearl Jam fan partially because like my dad had the first, he had ten on CD, but he like never played Pearl Jam for me, so I never really listened to Pearl Jam at all for a very long time. Like I know like Even Flow, I know some of the big songs, but never really was exposed to their music at all. So I never really, I didn't come into them until they were already this mythological thing, you know? Mm-hmm. But um, and what's your experience with them? Uh, you know, uh, no one in my family growing up really listened to Pearl Jam. Um, honestly, it was a fairly sizable gap in my um, my rock history listening up until a few years ago. Um, and obviously I'd heard some of the, the major hits, but I've been diving more and more into their discography. I saw them live 2018 at Fenway. Uh, maybe it's 2017 at this point. Mm-hmm. I can't remember, but amazing live show played some, some deep cuts. I believe they had someone from dinosaur junior come out and play with them, which was pretty cool. Um, and you know, Vetter is just, he's a modern rock star dude he and he carries himself as such and it's it's great to see and they they sound amazing um but the, i guess it was interesting because I, I was reading the the pitchfork review of gigaton and i thought they made a pretty good point which is you know pearl jam came together and pretty quickly rose to be one of the biggest bands of the 90s and mm-hmm. because of that they never really had to like redefine their style or redefine yeah. their sound they they kind of just were able to like float at this like high level like a legacy act right and so they they've they rest their 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 image on this like grungy like sound but they're not really they're the state there's a stadium filling uh anthem rock band yeah and would you call them a jam band in concert but not in student not in studio like they're not like fish you know like they're a lot they're a lot tighter than that at least like so they do really long live shows great 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 experience for everyone right what's like the disparity of old school hall of fame pearl jam songs versus their new stuff like like i'm sure they sprinkle in the new out they'll sprinkle in this new album of course because it's brand new and they haven't had brand new stuff for the past who knows how many tours but like are they how much 2000s and on music are they even playing at these long ash sets i'm sure they change it up but it just feels like like the jamming nature of the live stuff. Everyone just really cares about those un- un- unimpeachable early songs. And that's all you'd hear. But I'm just guessing I never seen them. Well, Pearl Jam, I think they have like anywhere from 15 to 20 songs that you probably recognize. Um, if you were to like look through the list. So like, yeah, obviously like alive is probably their, their most popular song, even flow. Um, but like songs like Last Kiss, Yellow Ledbetter, uh, Better Man, Jeremy, like people know these songs. Daughter, people know. Mm-hmm. Um, it, so the thing is like they, they sprinkle some of these songs in, but usually it will, it, at least from what, from what I remember at Fenway was it would, they would do like a couple of, of newer songs and put in one of their like less, right. like the bottom of that 15 in, then go back to some of those and they'd play like a couple of the big hits in a row. Work it's, up to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's smart. You know, like it, they, they know what they're doing cause they, they need to fill the time, but they also do it where they do like these crazy, um, 
like guitar solos and you know lane then give the drummer a solo like they they keep the energy up fetter knows what he's doing he he's kind of like the the driver of this right i guess man maybe maybe the the comp isn't so much pearl jam but better as as like jeter like comparison hmm. you know because like yeah sure he still fucking got it and i think he sounds really great on gigaton which seems like it's maybe wasn't their most cohesive album attempt um but i think vetter still gives a really great vocal performance throughout and i think he is still top of his game in terms of uh being a frontman. yeah for me like his warble which is very very distinct very uh unique stands out I've, I just I just can't get into it, which which is annoying because like they're like a big loud band. They have all the other rock elements I like, but for whatever reason, it's just like the vocals just don't do it for me. So yeah. n- never been a big fan overall, even of like their big hits. It's like yeah, it's just it's not the kind of rock I like. But um, mm. it's kind of interesting because Gigaton again, like we've been saying, is Pearl Jam not really reinventing the wheel. You know, there's some modern, I think, lyrics, right? They're observing things. There's some pretty um, blatant references to Trump and stuff. But, like, mm-hmm. would, do you like this attempt, Pearl Jam, you know, kind of just do do what they do versus something like what Coldplay's done recently where they try and, like, do something very different? Mm-hmm. Again, been around so long. They, rather than doing the same thing again, more or less, they do something else. Whereas Pearl Jam's like, yeah, we still got it. I'm Eddie Vedder. I'm a boss. Like, what do you prefer <laughs> at like from like a late band like this? Like, do you want a gigaton? You know, I I think um, it's an interesting comparison, right? Because Pearl Jam, as we kind of mentioned, have been so established for so long, long in their career, and Coldplay also came up very quickly and uh, became very famous very quickly in early two thousands rock. But I think the thing with with Coldplay is when they went to like Viva La Vida, um, they really reinvented themselves there. Right. Um, yeah. And that evolution just continued to a more and more poppy sound. So there's been this constant evolution with Coldplay, whereas Pearl Jam has almost like defiantly been un, uh, has been resistant to, to trying something new and, and trying a new sound. And I do think they try some new things on here, like the lead single. Um, was it clairvoyant fuck i lost it here on my page oh yeah what's it called uh it's clairvoyant that's a funny name oh dance of the clairvoyance yes that's what it's called <laughs> yes um there that that's like the that will stand out of their catalog forever people are gonna hear that and be like that, that was a Pearl Jam song? Like, what year did they try that? Just the production on that is so different. It sounds a lot more modern, like rock. Try, it sounds like they're trying something there. Um, I think you kind of hear some of that too in like Super Blood Wolf Moon. It's like very much like this like growly, which better does growly well, but like the whole sound sounds growly and menacing, which I don't, and I don't really associate with, with Pearl Jam, like this menacing sound. I, I kind of associate with them like, a fuck you but like a like a we're all in this together like fuck everybody else type of sound um you know it, to go back to your question though i think i prefer a band to try something because i give them the fact i give them the credit for that they're they're putting themselves out there 
Pearl Jam is very comfortable. Um, I think the fact that they made this album seven years later is interesting. I, you could have maybe just imagined they weren't going to make music anymore. Um, so that maybe they feel like there's something new to it. But did you listen to the, the uh, podcast with Simmons? I did not. No, I did not uh, listen to the but first full circle moment. Um, no, I did not. Why was that? That was a long pod. Did, did, was, was anything gleaned on that? I did read that uh, a lot of this stuff, like they better added the vocals after the fact, like this seemed to be a very like mm-hmm. long drawn out album creation, which is probably not the most artistically sound way to try and have message in your music, but you know, I'm not going to tell them how to do it. Yeah. The, this album is incredibly collaborative. That's the kind of thing that came out of it where it's like every band member, they have their own thing going on, but they kind of contributed all this together. And uh, Vetter said that he never had a doubt that they were going to release more music and actually just like the years got away from them, um, hmm. which I find interesting because this, this album doesn't sound specifically like inspired by anything. I mean, there are some like certainly talking about like Trump and, and the lack of response in the world and just kind of like, the world's going to shit type of like mentality um, might be like the overall theme of this, but the way this album was put together, the sequencing doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. Um, you go from being a, a pretty like worrying rock song, like pretty driven rock song to more like relaxed or down, downbeat uh, tracks. And it feels just like you can't really get into it. I actually think the album hits stride the best um, near the end with like the last three songs comes and goes retrograde and river uh, river cross. I thought were the most consistent and well-crafted songs and they really like flowed together. Well, downbeat better kind of surprising to me on this album. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. That's definitely a stark change at least. Um, Yeah. uh, Just thinking about the album and thinking about Pearl Jam really for the first time in a while for me. Um, I was just thinking of like, you know, like the last Foo Fighters album was it 2017, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And like the last Red Hot Chili Peppers album in like 16, I think. Um, I, I kind of look at those three bands in tandem because they're like those the three like mega 90s bands that are still around and still hugely successful today. And it's kind of weird seeing like the Chili Peppers are the ones that kind of rose up. Like they have like the biggest, I think, worldwide appeal. You can look at like the streaming numbers. They are substantially ahead of the other two i think pearl jam and food fighters are kind of even which is kind of strange like i think like back in the 90s people weren't saying that right like pearl mm-hmm. jam kind of quickly rose up and was like kind of the defining band so that's kind of that's kind of interesting to me i mean obviously again they're all they're all too big to fail at this point but yeah kind of weird how that's gone billy pepper's been around a little bit longer they were like mid 80s um that's right it, yeah it was 89 89 is the last the first one yeah by the time pearl jam really rose up i think they were fairly established no, like, that's right yeah they're they're a lot older that's right um but yeah you know i it's interesting who's the other band that you mentioned along with them Foo like fighters Foo fighters yeah and Foo fighters were a little bit later i mean you think that was what like 98 99 that those first albums came out so that they're a little bit spread out um but i think kind of what what drives like so Vetter is this he's definitely a very charismatic guy when he's on stage but behind the scenes he's very laid back I don't see him doing a lot of like activism or really getting involved with other like outreach kind of stuff Dave Grohl was on that coronavirus uh, thing last night uh, on Mm. Fox a fundraiser Um, 
he's out there a lot. He does a lot of interviews, very charismatic yeah. guy, made Sonic Highway. It's just kind of his his style is he likes to be out in front. And Kiedis and Flea are the same way. They're personalities right. in of themselves. Where Pearl Jam has never really had that, and they've been kind of comfortable not being that like outgoing right. celebrity. So I think that, that probably plays a role into sure. how people view them um, and their popularity now. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I do think there's some good tracks. And one, one track I want to shout out that I really liked a lot. I already mentioned Retrograde Comes and Goes. Um, Seven O'Clock, I also thought was a pretty good track. I'll be adding one or one of those to our Nostalgia Best of. So definitely go give it a listen. And uh, really, when, when you come to it, this is probably still some of the best rock music that's out there. Sad to say. Um, yeah. But like when it comes to like... It's the truth, man. Yeah. When it comes to true <laughs> rock music, Pearl Jam can still bring it. But when it comes to pop music, man, do a leap of fucking owns. Uh, we're talking about her most recent, her second album, Future Nostalgia. Or, she, or could we say that she could have named this Nostalgia? I mean, I like on. to think she took inspiration from yeah. uh, the OG fan in the States, me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she, she was watching uh, your 2017 review and listening to it. And she's like, wow, got to give a shout out to my guy, Dave. Ah, Dave, what do you think of this record? It's fucking great, dude. <laughs> bangers, dude. All bangers. It was a great day, man. It was a you great said, day. You said no skips. Really? No skips? I don't think so. Wow. Thankfully, it's, it's short. If, if there was 20 more minutes, this was an hour long. Probably not the case. <laughs> but yeah, I thought it, 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 it was quite succinct. And unlike a lot of other well um regarded pop of the past few years this is very very throwback dude like to straight up completely 70s 80s disco vibes at times mm-hmm. um which is kind of a cool because we, we've seen her make that evolution into just dance pop full on you know that first record was not dance pop at all it wasn't until after that success where she dropped one kiss with calvin harris and electricity with ronson and diplo which won the grammy you know then it's like oh wait there's like like a true dance pop lane for Dua. And then she just took that to the next level with Future Nostalgia. And it's like, now you're seeing like Madonna comps in terms of like the Sonic ideas and stuff. So mm-hmm. yeah, very, very, very exciting. You know, I mean, I really like the, the first single, uh, Don't Start Now, which is again, like a, this is a dance, dance pop banger. And it's like, all right, wow. Okay. Like it, it's coming for sure. That was back in November. And then I, I wasn't sure if that was going to be like the full sound of the record. But I was very, very pleasantly uh, surprised to hear that. So, yeah, big, big fan. Yeah, I, I agree. I think this album is really, really great. I wouldn't say that there's uh, it, this is a no-skip album for me. I think there's certainly like a, a couple of songs that really stand out, a couple that fade to the back for me. But overall, um, I'm really impressed. You know, the conversation we've been having recently, and I think we maybe even had it on the pod, is you know, is Dua Lipa really in that like top sphere of like pop artists in the United States worldwide? Undeniable. She does numbers. If you look at even her Spotify, she's consistently top 10. Um, After fifth in the world, monthly listeners. And I think after her 2017 self-titled debut, um, I think she had seven or eight singles that came out that all were in like the billboard top 100 at certain points or something like that. Yep. It was kind of like a slow build. Like the album comes out in June of that year, some singles before that and like new rules, which is her, you know, her, her 
mega smash hits like 1.3 billion on spotify over 2 billion on youtube i think it's the uh second most streamed spotify song by a woman after camilla's uh havana and like the 17th most streamed song on spotify overall like again like the numbers go forever with that one but like that was like her sixth single off the self-titled one and like it was just kind of this like slow slow role by warner you know she signed to a major this whole time and i was just curious because like like at that time like i found out a lot of the way i think everyone in the states did if they found out about then at all which was online like on like a music blog because like she was getting all that worldwide attention as you said but like there was really no attention here at all like you could see it on the chart it was like she was not making huge chart runs and then it started to happen the wheels started to churn and like now it like you're saying, is she just full on like a list worldwide? You know, um, I th- I think I think she's gotten there. I was curious to see what what her upcoming tour was going to look like here in the states because last time she did a, a headlining tour was smaller rooms. Like I, I kind of kicking myself because in 2017 she did the House of Blues in Boston, which is a very small venue, and I thought about going and I didn't go. And it's like, well, that that's never happening again. She's going to at least do small like arena shows now. Yeah. So. She's she's playing TD Garden this time, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, and I, I think this is the type of album that even if it doesn't necessarily propel her to be like that, that household name, you know, like a Taylor Swift or a Beyonce, I think what does it establishes her as a true crafter of pop sound um, because I was really blown away with some of the production choices on this album. Uh, you mentioned kind of the the theme. Uh, she seemed to really. Uh, bring together 80s and 90s pop sounds on this you know you mentioned the madonna comp i think it makes a lot of sense um and another comp i've been seeing thrown around about her is kylie minogue uh sound which is like Mm -hmm. this like futuristic pop sound and that's that's all over this uh i i would almost uh wonder if kylie minogue was like shadow producing this at points (laughs) because it sounds so in line um but there are some songs on here that are up there for me in terms of song of the year. Levitating is that's the one. Might maybe uh, it's top two for me. Top two songs of the year. It's just incredible. <laughs> yeah, that's one of those like pop perfection songs, which is funny because I feel like "Don't Start Now" is another like kind of unimpeachable, hard to pick any holes in that kind of song. But in here, "Levitating," there's like extra layers with that one, man. I think that's like the clear highlight, mm-hmm. which is interesting because later on in the album you have like her talking about the more feminist ideals she has publicly espoused from time to time. And now we're actually hearing that come up in her music. Obviously that'd be the last track. Boys will be boys. So yeah, this, the, 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 the union of the sound, I think was uh, really what stood out to me the most, but yeah, I think you're right. levitating, man. That's the one I've definitely played the most thus far. It's a true banger. It was an immediate repeat track for me on first listen. Go back, listen to it again. Um, yep. And, and I think what I really love so much about that is that the chorus is crafted in such a, a way that it just like sticks in your mind. Um, but then it has like these nice production flourishes. There's these like distorted backing vocals behind the, mm-hmm. the chorus, which really like catch your ear and kind of just like sit there. Um, and then it, they use like a, a chorus sound to kind of drive the beat. Like they just kind of play it over and over. And I'm like, oof, this is 
beautifully done. Um, and, and you already mentioned don't start me now or don't, don't start now is definitely up there. Physical. Another one of the singles yep. I think is really great. And that's what, one that's really in line with the Kylie Minogue sound yeah, to me. That one's real. That that's like, you can maybe argue that's like one of her best, maybe her best song ever. Cause that's like really different than I think she'd done before. And yeah, I think you're right. Like the, the influence of, uh, mm. like, uh, uh, acclaimed artists in the past is pretty evident on that one and like her uh like she's like a contralto voice you know she's not ariana with the soprano you know you almost don't hear this voice from female pop stars nearly as much mm-hmm. and yet she i think i think she she really shines where she's able to really um i think use use the songwriting use the production to help her despite the fact that yeah she still doesn't have like that top top tier like vocal strength, like she's not Ari or Demi, but like, like it's kind of like, she's kind of like figured out like the way she wants to present herself in her music, which is funny because like, I remember like the first criticisms I used to see of her was like that she was like not really emotive at all. And it would really come out in like her videos and her live performances. And partially that is like, she was kind of a mediocre dancer and stuff. But now I think people are almost taking that and be like, no, that's kind of like the persona she has. She's almost like aloof or like, not like about like the bullshit you know mm-hmm. so maybe i'm projecting too much with that but i think that's <laughs> kind of cool one thing i will say what are your thoughts on her hair the blonde and black mix i've seen a lot of a lot of thoughts on that online really um i <laughs> yeah. i i think she's an incredibly beautiful person uh, and that her hair has never struck me as good <laughs> or bad so um I, I'm, i'll stay away from it dave what's your take on it though i'm interested uh, I actually don't mind. I think the blonde looks good. But <laughs> Dude, are people saying it doesn't look good? No, I saw I saw some like like hate. They're like, um, even though this album is a ten out of ten, let's not make the blonde and black a thing. Stuff like that. Oh man, <laughs> I, I think she's great. So uh, I'm, I'm down with the blonde. <laughs> Keep it if you want, Dua. Um, yeah. So I guess Dave, I want to ask. Cause I hear you saying this. This is no skips. The weekend is no skips. Is this like top five albums? Top two albums for you this year so far? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This it's it's so funny hearing this in the weekend in successive weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, we weren't supposed to get that this album till Friday, but um, I guess this duo's second album is probably one of the more notable full-on leaks in quite some time, and that had to have factored in. It was not publicly stated as such, but you figure pushing it up a week due to the album already being out there, so. Um, that's probably part of it, but yeah, this, this and after hours, I think are my top two so far. Um, but I have a lot of like songs I've really liked, but yeah, I think these are my two favorite records and because the the, the other two, I think for me that both it's kind of music I like, but also that they're really, um, kind of focused in like both sonically and the message of what the artist wants to do, whereas something like Uzi loved Colonel take a lot, but that's not exactly the most, um, coherent <laughs> things start the back so i wouldn't hold it up to this level um but yeah uh i just want to shout out uh anwar hadid do his uh boyfriend who i think has had some inspiration on this and this is again a week after bella hadid had some inspiration for different reasons on the weekend's album and if only uh Gigi hadid would have the same effect on zane because zane is a very disappointing <laughs> artist at this time you're just trolling at this point. Uh, no, I, I genuinely believe that, though. I think Zane, Zane, <laughs> Zane Loki sucks. And as the first guy to break away from One Direction, you would have thought that wouldn't have been the case. 
So, <laughs> uh, work on that, Zane. What's uh, you're back together now. What's uh, let's, let's figure it out. <laughs> I, I'm not up to date on all these celebrity relationships, so thank you for for informing me of that, Dave. Any last thoughts on Dua before we wrap up? She won Best New Artist at the Grammys last year. Seems like one of the rare good selections by the Grammys. Best New Artist, kind of a cursed uh, award. Yeah. <laughs> like three out of five usually don't go well, something like that, you know? Um, also, on a Good in Bed on this album. Hell yeah. Uh, which are a great song. Uh, I dedicate this verse to all that good pipe in the moonlight. Love it. Spill that tea. But um, that's produced by Take a Day Trip which is notable because they're, I think, one of the more rising hip-hop producers of late. Of course, they produced Mo Bamba and Panini for Lil Nas X, Rodeo, a bunch of other songs at this point. So uh, you, you look at the, uh, the, 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 the liner notes on Future Nostalgia, it's not like After Hours. There's no like Max Martins on this. There's no like hu- huge names, I think, like apart from like Tuvlo and Julia Michaels on like one song. It's kind of like lesser, lesser known movers and shakers which I think is kind of cool because at the end of the day, Dewey is still assigned to a big three label. Like she's kind of their, their main pop focus for a Warner. So that's kind of cool. That she seems to be so really in control of what she's doing. Shout out to Dua. Shout out to Future Nostalgia, one of our favorite albums of the year so far, especially Dave's. Uh, Dave, you mentioned some smaller movers and shakers. Are we going to be tuning into more smaller movers and shakers to fill the time coming up? What do we got on the docket? Thundercat, new album. Okay, <laughs> got a Empress of who I actually like her a lot. She's kind of this uh, very very not famous American pop artist. Um, that's all I have for like new releases. Lady Gaga was uh, supposed to be coming in two weeks. She's already canceled, so it doesn't feel like surprise music releases are going to be that common, except for I suppose in hip hop, but. Yeah, so we're going to talk about XSO Freshman next week, which um, is only a, a few weeks ahead of when we did it last year anyway, so it's about that time regardless. And uh, we'll see if uh, there's any like ghost drops on streaming. Of course, Hulu surprised everyone with Portrait of a Lady on Fire last week. Granted, we already talked about that. So, I mean, I know you've seen that now as well. So we'll yes. see if Netflix has anything. I feel like they're still kind of riding the Tiger King wave out, you know? So yeah. HBO is still kicking, but there's nothing new new this week. Netflix said they have like 64 new things to drop. We're heading into April. I'm assuming we'll get something. So well, there will be stuff to talk about, I'm sure. Uh, my, my quick 20-second review of A Portrait of a Lady on Fire is uh, the scene where they do drugs in their armpits. Fucking dope. Um, the chemistry between the two leads is like it crackles on the screen. Um, and I've never had a movie where like so little happens that like I'm so <laughs> riveted by. So mm. if you haven't seen it and you have Hulu, which most of you I would assume do, especially if you have Spotify, you can get it for free. Um, go check it out. Or it's like not, it's like three bucks extra a month. Something like that, so. Mm. so it was three bucks extra a month. Then it became free. And now you no longer can get that deal. Oh, damn. But so I've looked and we're not getting kicked off anytime soon. So I assume Disney's going to be like, uh, fuck this. You got to pay soon. But not yet. Uh, they, they might just throw that in as a bundle. I don't know. Disney. Corporate overlords. Anyways, until next week, uh, go listen to all the albums we talked about and uh, get back to us at Nostalgia. Follow our, our playlist at uh, best, Nostalgia Best of 2020. Jesus Christ. And uh, yeah, 
give us a five-star rating review on iTunes and subscribe on YouTube. Peace out. Yeah.